Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a segment about the difference between the words although and while, and a segment about how to write with cliches. I often have to tell people that their pet peeves aren't actually hard and fast grammar rules. I have to tell people it's okay to split infinitives, and that in some cases it's fine to end a sentence with a preposition, or to use the word between when you're choosing among more than two items. I know it's upsetting to learn your nearest and dearest beliefs are wrong. So this week, I'm going to talk about my own mistaken peeve. It bothers me no end when people use while to mean although. But no matter how hard I looked, I couldn't convince myself that I'm right. You see, I think although means in spite of the fact that. As in, although Sir Fregalot is tall, Squiggly and Aardvark consider him an equal. Although is what's called a concessive conjunction, meaning that it's used to express a concession. On the other hand, I believe while should be reserved to mean at the same time. It should have a temporal sense, as in, while squiggly gathered wood, aardvark hid the maracas. At first, I was sure I was right, because in his book Usage and Abusage, Eric Partridge said that while for although is a perverted use of the correct sense of while, which properly means at the same time. Ha! But then I discovered that Fowler's modern English usage says it's normal and acceptable to use while to mean although. Fowler even called Partridge's comment indefensible. It is a grammar rumble, people. I decided to go over their heads and see what the Oxford English Dictionary has to say. And it backs up Fowler with an entry saying while can mean although. Two additional dictionaries concurred. Further, Brian Garner says the non-temporal use of while, in other words, while to mean although or whereas, ranks at stage five on his language change index. Stage five, which he defines as universally accepted, not counting pseudo-snoot eccentrics. Ouch! I don't want to be a pseudo-snoot eccentric. I was thwarted, but I'd given it a good shot. One reason I'm telling you this story is that I want you to know that I go to this much trouble to validate all your pet peeves too, but sometimes it isn't possible. 
My only small vindication is that there are times when it's confusing to use while to mean although or whereas, and then it isn't allowed. For example, if you were to say, while squiggly is yellow, aardvark is blue, people wouldn't know whether you were contrasting the two characters' colors or saying that aardvark is only blue when squiggly is yellow. In cases like that, you have to use although or whereas. So moving forward, in my own writing, I'll probably continue to reserve while for times when I mean at the same time, because old habits are hard to break, but I'll stop automatically striking out while when I'm editing every time I see it used to mean although. Next, I have two related bonus facts. First, it's fine to substitute though for although. In the way we're using it here, though, is simply a less formal version of although, and it's in such common use that it's okay to use it in formal writing, too. In fact, though came before although. In the 1300s, before although became one word, it was two words, all and though, with the all there to add emphasis to the though. You can't always do the opposite and substitute although for though, because though also has other meanings. Here are two examples where you couldn't make a substitution. He ran as though zombies were chasing him. Cats make me sneeze. I love dogs, though. Second, while and whilst mean the same thing. Although whilst is still used in British English, it's considered archaic in American English. It's just one of those quirks of language that whilst survived in Britain but perished in America. If you're an American who wants to sound snooty, you can use whilst in place of while, but I wouldn't recommend it. Next, I have a segment about cliches by Edwin Battistella. So when I say I or me, that's him. Recently, a friend gave me a copy of It's Been Said Before, A Guide to the Use and Abuse of Cliches by lexicographer Oren Hargraves. I was intrigued to read it because I'd been wondering about clichés for some time. Clichés are commonplace linguistic forms or formulas that serve a predictable function, much like idioms, under the weather, or stock transitional phrases, on the other hand. Clichés can be helpful when a writer needs to establish or invoke a commonly accepted idea in a way that's well-codified and easy to understand. Those same features, codification and simplicity, can also make commonly used phrases appear trite. Nevertheless, we rely on them. We may use them when we're writing on a deadline, hence their prevalence in workaday journalism, and we may use them when we're speaking extemporaneously and can't always aim for thoughtful originality. We may use them because we're lazy or don't really care about the piece we're writing. Whatever the reason, clichés fill the page or the ear with words and present the illusion of a description. We write about a deafening silence, an accident waiting to happen, a recipe for disaster, spilled milk and death blows. If clichés are so bad, why do they even exist? New ones arise all the time as part of the life cycle of linguistic forms. What was once a fresh metaphor becomes popular, then all too common, and then clichéd. The once evocative dumpster fire is already in need of a replacement, and the phrase past its sell-by date may be past its own sell-by date. The most tattered cliches never disappear, fit as a fiddle, alive and kicking, in this day and age, 
a country mile, seemed like an eternity, and head in the sand are recycled endlessly in the thrift shop of our vocabularies. Like idioms, clichés can also become so automatic that we may lose track of their literal sense. After the storm, builders came out of the woodwork. It's time to bite the bullet on gun control. I will touch base with you about baseball on Sunday. Choosing the correct floral arrangement is not so cut and dried. The reader or listener may focus on the clumsy, unintended semantic mismatch, and if you're lucky, people will think you're punning. My interest in clichés started when I noticed them in the prose of more than a few good writers. I began to suspect that we all fall into clichés when the writing gets uncomfortable, when we're commenting on topics that are emotional or profound. When we write about new awarenesses, life-changing moments, or matters of great consequence, originality and precision seem to abandon us. We slip into wordy, conventional formulas, invoking a palpable sense of dread, a force of nature, or a perfect storm. How does a writer control cliches, or at least become more aware of them? Well, it's not rocket science. They often stand out like sore thumbs. As we proofread, we should give any piece of writing a cliché check, noting phrases that seem overly familiar, and deciding if we really need them or if there's maybe a better way to express the thought. A quick cliché check would certainly catch those references to rocket science and sore thumbs in the last paragraph. If we decide to keep an idea, we might come up with a better, fresher way to say it. Consider the lament, I wanted to curl up in a little ball and die. That cliched way of expressing embarrassment might be recast as, I wanted to disappear in a puff of smoke. How about trying, I wanted to erase myself? Or if we're expressing frustration and had drafted, I ran into a brick wall at every turn, we might consider instead saying, I felt like a mime in an invisible box. Monitoring cliches is as much a part of proofreading as minding your commas, apostrophes, and spelling, and it'll make better writers of us all. I hope we're on the same page about this. That segment was written by Edwin L. Battistella, who teaches linguistics and writing at Southern Oregon University in Ashland, where he served as dean and interim provost. He's the author of Do You Make These Mistakes in English? Bad Language, and The Logic of Markedness. This segment originally appeared on the OUP blog and is included here with permission. Finally, I have a family-like story about cheese. Hi, Grammar Girl. It's Jim from Sacramento, California, and I have a family-like to share with you and your listeners. When my daughter was very young, just starting to talk, she liked to eat American cheese slices you know, the ones that are individually wrapped that people put on hamburgers or sometimes use to make grilled cheese sandwiches. Maybe it was because she couldn't say the word American yet, or maybe it was because she was just very observant, but she came up with her own name for those cheese slices. She called them flat cheese. I remember thinking to myself, you know, she's right. It is flat cheese. And to this day, my family still refers to American cheese slices as flat cheese. Keep up the great work, Grammar Girl. That is great, Jim. Flat cheese seems like such a practical name for it. It made me wonder why it's actually called American cheese. It looks like the term was popularized by James Kraft of Kraft Foods fame. 
He patented processed cheese and started marketing American cheese in the late 1910s. And it wasn't always flat. Thinking back, my mom used American cheese in her macaroni and cheese recipe, and we always had a big block of it in the refrigerator, which, according to cheese.com, was the first form. And that makes sense that the block of cheese would be the kind you bought way before it became available as individually wrapped slices. But now those wrapped slices are probably more popular. Thanks for the call. If you want to call and leave a voicemail with the story of a word or phrase your family and only your family uses, the number is 83321-4-GIRL. And you can find that. Um, that goes out in my email newsletter every week, too, which you can sign up for at quickanddirtytips.com. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl. And thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams. That's all. Thanks for listening. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll, to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.